Hey guys, welcome to BS Energy's BMS Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey and Rich Fish. In today's podcast, we will be discussing proper PID control loops. So for the listeners that might not know, there are different types of control loops, uh, starting with P, PI, and then PID, and those stand for proportional, proportional integral, and proportional integral and derivative. So Mark or Rich, would you want to just give us a quick rundown of maybe paint a visual picture of what a P control loop, PI control loop, and PID control loop looks like? Well, I wanted to back up just a little bit and say this would be in addition to two position with differential P, PI, PID, or two position with a dead band, as well as trim and respond algorithms, Mm -hmm. P, PI, and PID are basically for closed loop control of proportional elements. And Rich, I'll let you jump in, but I just wanted to say we aren't spending a lot of time today on two position or dead two position with dead band or PI with dead band or trim and respond, but really sticking right to PPI and PID. Yeah. The typical complete closed loop type control where you have an input variable, a set point that you're comparing that to, calculating an output adjustment and then making that output adjustment. And the P or PI or PID is the part that's calculating that adjustment to the process. In a pure P only loop or proportional only loop, your control typically looks like a roller coaster. You have set point that you're trying to maintain, you have your measured variable and you have your output. With proportional only control, your result of comparing your measured variable to your set point typically looks like a kind of a roller coaster. And in reality, the way I was taught years and years ago to tune PID loops was when you start the process, you continue to increase your proportional value until you get that result of an oscillating wave. And then from that point, you begin to introduce the integral that then flattens that out. And derivative is a whole nother story that we'll get into later. But that's the basic kind of thought of, you know, a proportional only loop is the proportional adjustment is taken until you reach a point where your value is basically oscillating around set point and in proportional only that that oscillation kind of looks like a roller coaster or, you know, a sine wave. So one thing to keep in mind about proportional control and, and, you know, having cut my teeth in the early days with pneumatic control and the typical pneumatic room thermostat is a proportional only device that in the steady state with proportional only control. And I'm talking about steady state of measure variable and process variable there will always be offset, period. The controller output is directly proportional to the amount of offset between the measured variable and the process variable. What does that mean? I have a room temperature set point on my pneumatic thermostat of, pick a number, 70 degrees. The sensitivity of the thermostats were typically two and one-half pounds of air pressure per degree of offset. So when you had pneumatic devices in the field, 
the pressure would change from set point, the set point being the mid-range of all the, for instance, uh, unit ventilator control elements, which might be a four to eight PSI spring range heating valve and a nine to 13 outside air damper. So the steady, the, you know, the midpoint of that total spring range would be your 70 degree calibrated output pressure as the, with a direct acting thermostat as the temperature in the room rose, so would the output pressure of the thermostat at two and a half pound per degree increments, leading us to maintain a steady state temperature, which may not be the actual calibrated set point. Probably won't be. If you ever actually get to set point with proportional only control, it is a happenstance, not what you would typically expect. Right. And it, it's so it's pretty safe to generalize that you would pretty much only see proportional control loops, if you want to call it that, in pneumatic control systems. Most DDC are probably a little bit more advanced. Not necessarily, but in general, most DDC loops now included a minimum P plus I. And I'll talk about the I function and what that really does. The integral term calculates the difference between the measured variable and the process variable, that is the set point and what it is you're actually controlling and then continues to change the output of the controller beyond what the proportional control loop would have done on its own until we get back to equality between the measured variable and the process variable. So what that really does is is add to the proportional output to continue to change the output until MV equals PV. Yeah. So if you're painting that picture, you know, Rich, like you said, proportional is just, it's basically a sine wave oscillating over your set point, which would be a flat line. And with PI, your sine wave will gradually or rapidly get smaller till it, it meets that set point flat line and rides it pretty much. Right, Mark? If I'm trying to paint a visual picture. Yeah. But let's go back to the sine wave for a minute. So what Rich said is, is very correct that in the early days, okay, what do we do? We increase the sensitivity or the output of the controller ratio until we get a sine wave function and then decrease it. It's very similar to the way, for, for lack of a better analogy, we used to be able to tune the idle mixture on a standard carburetor where you lean down the mixture until you see a decrease in RPMs and then open the needle valve a quarter turn. Very simple. And I assume that is just to say we want the controller to be able to respond at a at a fast enough rate, but not overshoot too much. Not overshoot and or create the sine wave. Right. So now we have a steady state condition with proportional only control where we have offset between the set point and the process variable. And that is what mandates or brings in the necessity for using P plus I. Yeah, in the simplest terms, the I portion of the controller integrates the error over a period of time until the error value approaches or gets to zero. Right. And then it's, it's you know, hold the value of the final control vice device so that error stays as close to zero as possible. 
and I don't know what the appropriate way to explain it is, but to me that that happens very quick in a control loop or it can happen very quick if you tune it correctly. That's correct. Uh, in PID control loops, at least in the DDC world, they can vary you know, pretty greatly between different manufacturers. There uh, are some PID loops that will actually let you, you know, input basically a ratio based on the range of your input variable to your output device. Um, they're external to the, the actual P, I, and D gain adjustments. And essentially in the DDC system, that's what the, the values are that you're adjusting for P, I, and D are, are literally gains on that equation because the equation itself is performing the proportional integral and derivative calculations. Tuning it comes from basically adjusting those gain values of each of those parameters. Right. Correct me if I if I described that wrong. No, you you des- described it very correctly, and I think when we talk about this, uh, you know, what are the external parameters? Well, there's really two time responses that we talk about. Number number one is the time response of the actual control loop, and the other is the time response of the system, the system response loop. Right. Yep. So j- just to digress for a minute you know, the the shortest or the most brief explanation I can provide on the system response in terms of how we describe it is a first order system in the electrical world has one capacitor, one resistance, one resistor in it. So from that, you can calculate the response of that electrical system. When we put more devices, two resistors, two capacitors. Now we have a second order system it becomes harder to define the response. And as we put more devices in it, uh, you go to a second, third or fourth order system, the response curves start to change dramatically based on the size and the, the magnet, the size of the elements you're introducing, be they resistors or capacitors. So now on the system side, for instance, we're trying to control the room temperature. Well, for the room temperature to change, for instance, in a, in a single room, we have to, number one, measure the temperature. So we have the mass of the room that is uh, one of the elements in the uh, response curve that is basically impacting the measurement of the room temperature by the thermostat. We have the rate of response of the control valve. We have the hot water supply temperature, which may need to respond. So all of those things, and and it's it's impractical for us to expect that control contractors would measure all of those things and then go ahead and calculate the tuning parameters. But all those things impact the tuning of a control loop. So in most cases in the HVAC world, we have, you know, third, fourth, fifth order system response curves and second or third order controller response curves. Makes sense. So bringing it back to the last element of the control loop, then just again, painting to picture uh, a PID loop compared to a PI loop. I think I could say this pretty well is it's, it's a nice asthmatic curve approaching the 
set point, the measured variable approaching the set point, and there's really no overshoot. It hits that line and it and it stays at it. Uh, good analogy I've taught was cruise control. Cruise control is very good PID control, and actually, um, you know, PID. If you can imagine a human element, you come to a stop sign, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't want to overshoot the stop sign. We don't want to undershoot the stop sign. So let's say we're approaching the stop sign at 40 miles an hour. At some distance from the stop sign, you begin to apply braking pressure. Mm-hmm. And if you maintain that same, same braking pressure right up to the point where you reach the stop sign, you'll probably put your passengers in the windshield. So as you get closer to the stop sign right. and your speed starts to reduce, you reduce your braking pressure so that as you roll up to the final stop, your speed doesn't increase at a steady state. It's not in decreasing, you know, 10 miles an hour every 1.5 seconds. It's decreasing uh, one mile an hour in the last one mile an hour per second as you roll up to the stop sign. So there's a nice smooth approach to that mm-hmm. stop. So that's the rate control that is actually um, taking over when you get close to the stop sign. And that would be uh, mathematically terms. It'd be like a parabolic curve kind of, right? Correct. Yeah. It's not a straight line. No way. Not by any stretch. Correct. Yep. So again, just trying to help paint the picture for maybe some listeners that are new to the world and, and trying to get a, a visual representation of what this looks like. Yep. So I liked it. Let's kind of discuss the evolution of control loops. And I know we, we did talk about it a little bit in the pneumatic world. Well, uh, do we want to, before moving on, uh, talk about the derivative portion of the equation? Yes. That's yeah. The least, yeah. That's the least understood portion yeah, of the PID control. Absolutely. Di- yeah. So the derivative portion of a PID controller, its function is pro- is to kind of anticipate future behavior of the error. So it looks at kind of the rate of change over time and anticipates an increase or a decrease, kind of give a kickstart to the system response so that you don't have uh, large swings occur when there's a change in the process. Keeps the 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 control smoother. When you have just PI, when there's a change in the process, you get a larger swing and it takes longer for it to come back to that steady state value. The derivative portion anticipates that behavior, essentially the future behavior, by seeing the rate of change with respect to time and then increasing the uh, output or decreasing the output quicker to compensate for that. So, Rich, I'll ask you a question and, and just give you um, um, get your thoughts on it. So, we see many, many control systems as we go through commissioning different manufacturers, different actual end end controllers, field controllers, and not very many have PID controls embedded. Most are P and PI. And one of the things that we see often is engineering designers significantly oversize equipment. So that could be everything from a chill water coil to a VAV Vox to whatever. And specifically in those instances, PID would be very helpful because, okay, we open the control valve, which is sized for full flow through the 
coil at the two or three PSI pressure drop and you open that control valve and then the system wants to overshoot immediately. So from your perspective, is it becoming more common that PID controls are embedded in HVAC controls? From our perspective, it's a very slow push and coupled with the lack of uh, good understanding of PID control, it's, it's just not as prevalent as maybe it could be, I think. I, I, I agree with that uh, last statement. The previous one about actually DDC systems, you know, providing PID control. 90% of the ones that I have worked with in my career, in my career span systems from Voltec, which was a small uh, Pittsburgh-based company that had a pretty advanced system at the time in the 80s, to American Automatrix, to Automated Logic, Allerton, DisTech Controls, uh, even some work with some of the uh, Siemens stuff. But PID is typically available in pretty much any DDC system these days. Whether or not it gets utilized is the bigger question. Most of the time, P&I is being utilized and, and the derivative function is being ignored or not even made available. That is something that I see with understanding of what it brings. DDC system engineers making more use of P, I, and D type control because of exactly what you described, Mark. A P, I only controller when you have uh, a process that a small change in output can result in a large change in the process, PI alone will never give you a good steady state control when there are changes in the process. Right. You know, you know uh, in the sense of an air handler, say it's switched from uh, minimum outdoor air to economizer and there's a sudden change in the mixed air temperature coming in and the chill water valve or the hot water valve, whatever it may be, has to react to that. And that valve is oversized or the coil is oversized and you get that rapid change for a, a, a small change in the actual output. Derivative is, is critical at that point. Otherwise, you're going to have these big oscillations or big error occur every time the process itself changes requiring an adjustment. So why do you think controls contractors don't implement the derivative that much? Is it just a, a lack of understanding in the tuning or? I, I believe it is, Clayton, a, a lack of understanding of what derivative really does. Derivative to most control technicians is a mystery. Okay. I, I, I don't think that uh, a lot of control technicians really get taught about PID loop technology, the mathematics behind it, and how to properly tune a PID loop, particularly tuning based on derivative. Mm -hmm. I think it's been that way for, I mean, Mark, you can comment too. I think it's been that it way has, for a long and, time. You know, fortunately, early on when I started my career at Johnson Controls, the comprehensive understanding of PPI, PID, and actually how it was used in a pneumatic controller was essential. So we would engineer pneumatic control systems and based on the selection of the, of the uh, control loop 
whether it was PPI or PID, it actually required different pneumatic controllers. You couldn't just, uh, you know, push a button, set a jumper, and change a controller from P to PI or PID. And you also had to understand how it worked internally in terms of providing feedback of the controller output inside the controller to be used in the derivative calculation. And so, you know, it drilled into our heads the necessity for understanding control logic because it wasn't as simple as just, oh, we'll we'll add some D into the term that would require repiping a panel, adding devices, and you obviously didn't want to have to do that. But yeah, so you're saying, and then getting, like if I started right in modern DDC, it'd be a little different. My understanding probably doesn't, is not as in depth because it's not required to be per se. No, but it, it would be helpful uh, to have better training uh, on the yeah. technical side for the individuals, both mm-hmm. uh, programming and starting up control loops. I mean, how many loops have we seen where, for want of a better word, the uh, technicians tell us, and Rich, we're not casting aspersions on the controls industry. The control loops that we see, we ask for some pretty uh, rigorous trending when we do commissioning. So when we see sinusoidal outputs or we see significant offset, but specifically, you know, sinusoidal response, the typical response is, well, we'll open up the proportional band. We'll throw out the boat anchor and put some filters in. I mean, those are just not the right way to approach good control loop tuning. Slowing things down is, is, I mean, that's like putting a governor on your high performance automobile. We have 12 bit A to D conversion. We have, you know, even this calibrated sensors and we can't tune a control loop so that it's not a sinusoidal response because we don't understand the system response curve and understand PID control. That's not good. No. And I've seen the, uh, over the years, and I, again, I, I, you know, I take it back to the training that uh, uh, DDC technicians are given these days. And we make it a point to, you know, with our team to get down into the nuts and bolts. So there's a deep understanding. But most of what I see if I go and look at a loop is, you know, they've tuned it at a steady state. Yeah. And did not change the process to see how the loop reacted to a change in the process. So it's very easy when you've got, you know, stable conditions to tune with just PI and have Mm -hmm. a nice flat line with very little, you know, sinusoidal activity or upset in the, in the loop itself. And then you make a rapid change and that loop has to respond all of a sudden it goes into a sinusoidal wave and takes 25 minutes before it flattens back out again. And if there's very periodic change in the process, that never gets to settle out. Right. So when I, when I talk to technicians about, you know, tuning a loop, I, I tell them you have to basically do your process. Then you have to change the process to see how it reacts and make sure that you've tuned it so that it will 
return to steady state in a acceptable time frame every time there's a change in the process. And a lot of that is going to be dependent on the derivative function. That's kind of where I've seen a lot of issues. You'll, you'll show up commissioning a job and say, okay, change the, change the set point. And they do. And then that control loop gets out of whack and it's doing the up and down, up and down, trying to find that set point. And I think in, in a lot of our specifications, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, where we say 10 minutes, it has to respond and be back to the set point. And man, some of them are 15, 20. At some point we just give up. So you got to do better. Or if you get, you know, my favorite is when it takes nine minutes and 53 seconds and they're like, that's a good control loop. Well, <laughs> not really. No. And, and that's just actually squeaking by. Gen- exactly. That's generous. Given no, that's, 10 that's right. And, and was that and right, Mark? Is know, that, yeah, 10 minutes. So, yeah. This would be on a typical, you know, air handler supply air temperature where you, you will have pretty fast response. Yep. Chill water valve opens or hot water valve opens or whatever it is. And the control loop should be able to manage that without any problem. And uh, as Clayton said, well, we get the wet thumb. Hey, that looks pretty good, huh? No, doesn't look pretty good. <laughs> well, and then they get it pretty good. And then they copy and paste those values to the next air handler and the next air handler. That's a different well, size has a total, you know, or what have you in it. System response it curve. doesn't work. Total yeah. Different response curve. So that, that also, that's, that makes me laugh a little bit. I'm like, oh, but yeah, my favorite is when you get the nine minute and 53, 54 second response. And it's like, oh yeah, we, we did good. I'm like, no, nah, I don't know if you want to consider that good. <laughs> you shouldn't, you should be able to respond quicker. If your if your cruise control did that, you'd be pretty pissed, wouldn't you? That's our usual response. So and I'm glad we covered everything. And I think we covered those portions in, in pretty well detail with the P, PI, and PID. And compared the PI to the PID and is the derivative that important? And I think we can all come to the conclusion that, yes, it is. And you should learn how to utilize it. And you should learn how to tune it properly. For when there are those rapid changes in um, your control variables. So do we want to dive a little bit into the evolution of control loops now? Well, evolution during my lifetime or during my professional experience, the evolution of precision process control loops basically emanated from the industrial world. You know, the the big manufacturers like Taylor Instruments, Foxborough, those guys with their, you know, extreme precision pneumatic controls and to a lesser extent, electronic controls really pioneered some of the most precise process controllers that were readily available, you know, in the thirties, forties, and all primarily based on uh, pneumatic controls and some to a lesser extent on electronic uh, bridge circuits and and amplifiers. But, you know, the early on in the early days of pneumatics, Things were just proportional, and only through really high-level engineering from you know the guy, the, the uh, guys that were you know the founders of Siemens. Same thing with Johnson Controls and Taylor Instruments and all. I mean, pretty rapid evolution during the 1900s until we got up into the you know 30s, 40s, 50s, and 
even the twenties when pneumatic controls became the, the standard for modern building control. Well, I thought it's funny. It's interesting to know. I think in, in this BMS podcast, Rich must may have been our very first one or so. Rich was talking about his past experience. And when he started in industry, he was the control loop, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, in, I worked in the industrial industry that at that time and the, um, the controls that were applied were essentially 1940s era where the process in, uh, included manual intervention constantly where you were flipping a switch to add to the process. And when you saw the chart recorder, you know, reach a certain point, you shut the switch off. And then when it fell below a certain point, you turned the switch back on again. So essentially, yeah, a, a human proportional integral control loop. That's crazy. That was uh, very, I mean, for the fact that it was the late 1970s, early 1980s, that was very old control technology. Right. Uh, I happened to work in, a, in an aging plant that was, you know, kind of being phased out where the sister plant a few miles down the road was all um, continuous process that actually had uh, electronic controllers built in, you know, removing that human intervention part and doing it through early uh, PLCs essentially. But in the, uh, my, you know, movement from being actually in the industrial process world to getting into the automatic temperature control BAS world, I had very little time where I worked with the the pneumatic stuff that Mark was talking about because I came in to the business in 1984, which was really kind of year one or year two of the real advent of uh, DDC controls. So not a lot of involvement with pneumatic, but I came right into a company at that point that had a, a pretty sophisticated PID loop built into their software. So I didn't really experience a lot of the work with the older stuff that Mark is referring to. The evolution that, that I've been involved with in my career has gone from, I guess, the fine-tuning uh, so to speak, of PID loops from the early 80s to what we have now, and, and even some into the uh, the automatic tuning PID loops. As I mentioned earlier, I, when I was taught uh, how to tune a PID, you know, there were a couple of different approaches. One that was called the trial and error method, one that was the the, the reaction curve technique, I was taught primarily on the trial and method error that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, while the system or controller is working, we increase the the integral and derivative are zeroed out and you increase the proportional until it reaches that oscillating behavior. I was even taught at that point, once you've got it into oscillating behavior, the P, the proportional that you had put to that point, you cut it in half. Hmm. Then you started to introduce your integral into that till you got that nice, you know, steady state minimal error. Right. And then you went to, you know, changing your set point and getting your reaction and then 
tuning your derivative portion to get the response you need for stabilizing that loop again very quickly when there is a change in the process. The reaction curve technique I was shown, but we kind of never used. Mark, I don't know if you ever used that or not. I mean, it's kind of, you start out open loop tuning and, you know, you produce a, a response curve and then you apply control output manually and record the response curve and then use mathematics to cal calculate your slope, your dead time, your rise time, and then convert them into the values for your P, I, and D gains that you put into your uh, PID equation. Can't comment on the use of that particular technique, but that was kind of an evolving period with PID controllers where different tuning techniques were introduced. And that's, that's a good point, Rich. And I think it, that still is very, well, I don't know if it still is, but I did work for Rosemount Industrial Instrumentation Company for a few years. And we were taught that as part of basically process control setup and pretty simple calculations. Though it, it does uh, take time, but it, it's effective. And it, in general, though, I think the tools and flexibility that are built into HVAC controllers, trial and error is just faster. You know, and in the HVAC world, perfection is not required, but you don't need perfection to get stable control loops in most instances in the HVAC world. There was a third method evolved too, and I, I may be jumping around our outline a little bit. I had never used um, uh, or seen used the, the, the Ziegler-Nichols method. Right. Are you familiar with that, Mark? No, never used it. Yeah, I never did either. So it was one of the three different methods of tuning that was presented when I was taught, but never saw it actually in use. Uh, I can't comment on the the validity of that tuning method or why it may be better or worse than any of the others. Well, that one seems like, a, a again, a mathematical approach as opposed to a guess and check approach. If you want it to call is. it, yeah, yeah, it is a it is a mathematical approach. It's kind of a a, a step further than the uh, response curve method. Mm -hmm. But again, like I said vast majority of my uh, experience was always with you know the trial and error method. Yeah, I found it interesting. Those uh, those fellows were from Rochester, New York, which is pretty Nichols. Yeah, which is pretty close to uh, pretty close to me so well then shame on you mark that you have never heard of them before you spend a lot of time in rochester i spent a lot of time in rochester now i'm gonna have to google it and read more about it i uh, just i just have it up too and i'm trying to i i looked yesterday where they they developed this oh now part of oh taylor instruments now part of yep. abb instrumentation in rochester new york yep. published two techniques so yeah it's interesting. This is a little bit of history. Taylor Instruments was in Rochester, New York, huge manufacturing plant. And Eastman Kodak, also headquartered in Rochester, New York, had an unbelievable instrumentation and control shop. I mean, unbelievable. In the in you know, just in terms of what they could do with pneumatics, the way they specified projects. Uh, 
at that time working for Johnson Controls, I mean, it was great, you know, Eastman Kodak, big customer. But just imagine, uh, Rich, you never did much with pneumatics, but back in the day, everything was installed in hard copper piping. So there was no poly tubing allowed in Eastman Kodak for instrumentation control. 100% sweated copper piping. All connections to controllers were swage lock fittings. Now, a swage lock fitting was, you know, four times, five times the cost of a typical connector or uh, Johnson provided uh, fittings with, you know, uh, a user perspective, no discernible difference in the amount of air that would flow or the reliability or anything like that. It was just the standard. And that stuff was still going in in 1980, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86. Phenomenal. I mean, that, those installs were calculated with probably a 50 year expected life cycle. You know, clean, dry air was just, you know, essential and, they took enormous steps to be able to provide that and Taylor instruments was right down the road and uh, they provided, you know, many, many pneumatic controllers and pneumatic chart recorders and, you know, hundreds and hundreds, I'm sure. And now most of those facilities have been dismantled, sold off. Some have been torn down, but I mean, just amazing INC instrumentation and control infrastructure in that facility and a huge brain trust in that area of the, of the country and in the state for instrumentation and controls, um, technicians and, and folks that have really, really, really good experience. Not really on the topic of PID control, but I, I did in my early in my career, a number of projects where all the motive force um, was pneumatic, meaning control valves, damper actuators, fan vanes and stuff like that was all pneumatically operated. And back in that time, polytubing was only used as the final connection point to a device that, you know, may move like a damper actuator. Everything was run in a quarter inch hard copper. And those guys were artists with that stuff. I mean, the way that it would get installed, it was just a, it was a, a thing of beauty. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, you know, if there are any pneumatic uh, motive forces used and it's done with poly, it's a, you know, it's all run loose and, and uh, bundled strapped or run in conduit and nothing compared to what the, those installations looked like in their heyday. Oh, I've even come across some, you know, it going into facilities where you still see the remnants of that. And it's, it's extremely impressive the workmanship to be able to do that. And yeah, now you see poly tubing strung across a ceiling grid zip tied every 20 feet and we're calling it good, which is not ideal. So we, we talked about this a little bit earlier in the podcast and I want to keep things rolling. Obviously control loop tuning and to me, the guess and check is interesting because it seems like, and this is just my small little slice of the pie, that a lot of, or some controls contractors maybe don't fully understand that process and what what they, you know, like you talk about it, Rich, where you'd say, okay, I'm going to set my 
proportional. So the controller oscillates and then I'm going to, you know, cut that in half and then bring in my eye. And it seems like sometimes that people don't understand that process well. And that causes obviously issues when you're just willy nilly selecting integral terms or proportional terms to try to find that right balance. That's true. It's the guess and check. It's when done right. It, it is, seems like a very, and I don't want to call it guess and check talking to it. Is it not a scientific approach to this? Because it really is, but when done properly, it is extremely efficient in doing it for a large facility or any, you know, any amount of control loops. Well, and, and truly, once you start to tune control loops, it no longer is guess and check. I mean, right. the guess is an experience-based mm-hmm. check, check that says, okay, in the past I've done this. And, and we oversee tuning control loops so frequently. I mean, just regularly and sometimes it it just requires going back to the basics and explaining that you know as you change the p term that will change the amplitude of the oscillation changing the i term will change the frequency of the oscillation and depending on the uh, magnitude or the system response curve how sensitive the process is to movement or output of a controller use of the d term obviously we make a couple of issues go away in terms of uh, the overshoot and in terms of uh, successive oscillations that result from the overshoot. So I alluded to this earlier in this episode, but what is in the HVAC world, what is a properly tuned control loop? How fast do you want that loop to be able to respond to a, a, you know, an input changing? We said like in our specifications, 10 minutes and 10 minutes back to stable state is like I said, that, that seems generous. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I would typically expect when I was working in the field anyway, on a, you know, an air handler with, you know, tuning a loop on a chill water coil or mm-hmm. heating coil or, uh, a, you know, a variable veins on a fan. And in some cases, depending upon how quickly, the uh, control device can act is going to impact that. But we were always looking to have, you know, some uh, return to steady state within just a couple of minutes, five minutes or less. Yeah. And, and Clayton, I mean, especially there are some critical environments that 10 minutes would be, wouldn't even get you out of the starting gate. Right. Go to a laboratory facility where you're maintaining critical, critical pressurization or, mm-hmm. you know, a biocontainment area. We're measuring the response to and correction for stable environment in seconds, not in minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, you know, our typical requirements where we write a spec government facility, typical air handling unit control for dormitories, airports, you know, those kinds of things. And honestly, it is, it is unnerving to hear people squawk about that being an unrealistic objective. And we hear that plenty. Yep. Yeah. Or like I said, when we celebrate, when we, when it gets to steady state in nine minutes and, you know, however many seconds, it's like, really, that's not a, 
some you should be really celebrating that you you just squeaked by. So again, just trying to give our listeners a, a feel for what these control loops look like and how fast they should be able to respond and get to that set point or control variable. So I, mean, I think we did a good job of painting that picture. Moving forward a little bit then, self-tuning control loops. Again, we talked about this a little bit in this episode. And I think in some prior episodes, Mark, you said you had a little self-tuning PID control controller for your humidor. I do. And that's not something we often see in industry, though. No, it was, uh, $35 on Amazon and connect the RH sensor to it, and it cycles the humidifier. And once you get to steady state, you tell it to tune, open the door, and close the door to create a system upset. And you open a humidor door and the humidity mm-hmm. drops pretty quickly. And right. so you might see a 20, 25% drop in relative humidity in 15 seconds. And uh, it does its thing based on time to get back to the uh, set point. And now you'll hear it cycle on and off every five or six minutes. And it maintains the relative humidity in the humidor plus or minus two tenths of a percent what do you think rich is that why why do you think we don't see self-tuning control loops so often in industry is it because a human when trained properly can tune it more efficiently better i don't know no i don't think uh to be honest i don't think that a human can be more efficient in tuning a control loop than an actual self-tuning control loop that's running all of those calculations, you know, in milliseconds or even microseconds. Right. Um, I'm not really a hundred percent certain why we don't see self-tuning PID loops in pretty much every DDC product. Uh, there's no reason in my mind that it shouldn't be a standard these days. Um, certainly with the processing power that uh, PI, uh, DDC controllers have these days taking the functional capability of the CPU and the brains that are in there, it should be relatively simple to have it do those functions, uh, even those trial and error functions at a much more uh, rapid pace and, and reach the optimal tuning parameters way faster than a human being can do it. Right. And I agree with you, Rich, and, you know, have talked with many major controls manufacturers over the years. And the typical response is, well, it's on, it's in development, it's in development, or, you know, it's scheduled, you know, somewhere down the road. And I I really don't understand why it's uh, uh, not, not included. I mean, I, I can't imagine that it would consume that much controller overhead in terms of, you know, processor or memory use, but it, it just seems like if you weighed out the economics of how much time it would save in the field, it has to be one of those things that would make sense to installers and, and uh, you know, startup techs. Yeah, I, I, I can't see any downside to, to having it a self-tuning control loops. I mean, make everybody's life a lot easier, it seems like, but who knows? And I'm I'm really surprised too that at this stage in evolution of uh, controls that we don't see more 
of the uh, fuzzy logic being applied right. for control, changing from you know uh, a, a quantitative type result to a qualitative result, which is what fuzzy logic is all about. And maybe that's a topic for uh, another podcast that maybe the folks listening can do a little digging on their own into what fuzzy logic is. But amazing to me that that's not prevalent within the DDC control world by now. I think that'd be a, a worthy podcast episode. Well, and I think, you know, you go back to the same thing, the trim and respond algorithm was developed, I think. Uh, I mean, it, it works, but it's really a substitute for a PID control loop that means by adjusting trim times and response amounts, you are building a facsimile of a control loop that really has no option and won't hunt, won't cycle, right. yep. but will always have offset. And and you only begin the trim and respond algorithm when it goes outside the op- offset boundaries. I mean, sometimes it's... Yeah, it it works, but it's still a workaround. Well, I think with that being said, we covered a lot about PID control loops. And if you guys don't have anything else to input, I think we'll, we'll wrap up this episode here. So, guys, thanks for tuning in. That was the that PID control loop BMS episode. Thanks a lot. Have a great day.